And welcome, everyone, to uh, this week's edition of Novak Now. This is Jake Novak speaking to you on the Nachum Siegel Network. It has been a, a very eventful week in news coming from Israel, news about Israel, news concerning Israel. So I don't want to um, avoid uh, avoid those big headlines, and I think it's important for us to get some analysis because it's been a week with some confusing results, some things that are frustrating, and it's important to really get into that. So, of course, obviously the big headline coming out of Israel over the past week is the failure of Prime Minister Netanyahu to reach some kind of coalition deal uh, with other parties, and it's really only one other party that he had, the, the, you know, where he hit the roadblock, where he hit the wall, and that was with Yisrael Beitenu, Avigdor Lieberman's party, that has only five seats in the Knesset, which is far less than 5% of the Knesset. But his five seats were the difference between having a majority and not having a majority for the Likud-led coalition with Prime Minister Netanyahu, and he was not budging. And instead of allowing another party, in this case the, the party that got the second most votes, the Blue, and War, the, the Blue and White Party, that new party that was started by a bunch of leaders of other factions in Israeli politics, namely Benny Gantz, who's really the, the leader of the Blue and White Party, followed very closely by Yair Lapid, who's kind of like the vice leader, uh, and, and a, n- a number of other top Israeli officials from the past who formed that party. And, of course, that entire party's reason to exist was to oust Benjamin Netanyahu. It was not really clear where their policies were uh, in, on a lot of major issues other than that. The, and it was clear that they would not enter into a deal of any kind with Netanyahu. So, as per Israeli law, if Likud ran out of time in forming a coalition, then the next opportunity would be given to the next party that came in second, and that would be Blue and White, and they would have had a huge problem creating a coalition as well. I don't see how Blue and White could have possibly created a a majority of 61 or more seats in the Knesset either. But rather than taking that chance, Prime Minister Netanyahu decided to go for new elections. And there were enough people who opposed him that were okay with that and voted for the new elections as well. And and to do that, they had to officially something called dissolving the parliament, which sounds very draconian. They didn't exactly, exactly throw themselves into a hot water and dissolve. But they basically say, this parliament that was just elected... This Knesset that it was just elected is no longer in effect. We're going to have to go to new elections. And that's what uh, they decided to do. And there were people who opposed Netanyahu who were willing to vote for that. And it got over 70 votes, uh, which by Knesset standards is a lot. The reason being what I just said before. Had the Blue and White Party been given the chance to create a coalition based on the existing numbers, they too would have had a very difficult time creating a coalition. Uh, I don't see, in fact, I think they would have had a much harder time. So they're willing to go to new elections for the most part. Uh, they said they weren't, but there were enough people in the Knesset who were. Um, and hope for better results this next time. And that's what Netanyahu is doing. He did not want to roll the dice and allow, for some kind of, on some kind of long shot chance, for Blue and White to be able to, to create a coalition and getting him out of the Prime Minister's office uh, after what's been more than 10 years since he re claimed that position in 2009. Many of you recall he was Prime Minister from 1996 to 1998. And he came back after 11 years in the political wilderness in Israel, which is a long time. But this has been, he now is on, still on track to become the longest-serving Prime Minister in Israeli history as far as total time in the office. 
surpassing Benjamin uh, David Ben Gurion. So that is where we are in Israeli politics. That's the news. That's the news right now. And now let's talk a little bit about why this is happening and what's going on. As many of you know, the sticking point between Netanyahu and Avigdor Lieberman was Lieberman's draft bill. Lieberman has a bill, and I hate calling it a draft bill because it sounds like it's the first draft. It's literally a a bill about the military draft. Almost everyone in Israel, male and female, has to do military service, but as most of you know, ultra-Orthodox Haredi families are exempt from that. However, over the last several decades, and Specifically, the last 10 years or so, there has been increased participation by Haredim in the Israeli Defense Forces. Some of it has been on somewhat special duty, some of it is very regular duty, and it has been something that has, I think, been an encouraging trend that's been going on in Israel. But for Avigdor Lieberman, who represents mostly the Soviet Jewish community in Israel, those first and second generation and, and immigrant uh, Russian families, they have always felt very left out compared to the exemptions and other perks that the ultra-Orthodox get. Now, Lieberman is unique in that he still is a very right-wing, politically right-wing uh, leader. And most Russian, and I think that a, a good degree of the Russian Jews and the descendants of, of original Russian immigrants to Israel, uh, and I mean this in, in the modern times, I'm not talking about Russian Jews who came to Israel in the 19th century. I'm talking about Russian Jews who came after the collapse of the Soviet Union or during the collapse of the Soviet Union. They do tend to be a, a little bit more on the right side of, of, of the ledger as far as most issues. Uh, I wouldn't say social issues, but political issues, security issues, military issues. Um, they are in line with Netanyahu on those issues. And... If you take a look at Avigdor Lieberman when he does news conferences, which is quite a, a lot lately, you'll notice he has a slogan behind him on the wall where he gives most of his press conferences that says something along the lines of, Kain yesh yamin chiloni. Yes, there is a secular right wing in Israel. And that's the group that he represents. And he created this party, Israel Beitenu, after having been sort of a protege of Benjamin Netanyahu. I think he was also his driver at one point. So this is the community that he represents. And they, for a long time, have felt that the Haredi community gets this advantage that they don't get, that they would like to see them participate more in the, in the IDF. And instead of working on some kind of compromise to make that happen... Lieberman is really standing on strong ceremony here, and he wants this bill passed. He wanted to guarantee that that bill, where he calls for some minimums of Haredi participation in the military, to be met. And he wanted it presented in front of the Knesset, and he wanted it passed. And he wasn't going to budge unless he got that. And it was a very interesting situation, because as he went into negotiations with Netanyahu, I think most of the country assumed that there will be some point where Lieberman would compromise. Maybe a promise of a delayed passage of the bill or a delayed reading of the bill, something like that, but he didn't. And there's a good chance that he understood what he was doing in a broader context because perhaps he felt that new elections would be called and that they would do better. Now, here's an interesting thing that's happened. Here's another bit of news that everyone has to consider. The initial polls now 
have a very funny, I think, a very funny result. The initial polls now from a number of sources since this happened in the middle of last week, since this, the, the dissolving of the Knesset and the calling of new elections, which, are, by the way, will be September 17th, since all that happened, the first polls have come out from a number of sources, and they all show something funny. First, they show that most of the country blames Likud and Yisrael Beitenu. So, in other words, Netanyahu and Lieberman are being blamed by most of the country for not being able to create a coalition. But in the, I feel, very hilarious second part of the poll, all the polls show that both Likud and Yisrael Beitenu would gain seats if the election were held right now. So, in other words, the, the, the groups that are being blamed for causing this election uh, malfunction the inability to create a coalition, are the ones who are going to get rewarded with more seats at the election were held now, which is, which is funny. Um, somewhat explainable by the fact that some people, some voters will feel like, well, if we just give the Likud a few more seats, then they would have more of a bargaining power and they would be able to win over uh, Yisrael Beitenu. And then there are some people who are somewhat sympathetic to Yisrael Beitenu and, and hardcore Yisrael Beitenu voters who feel the same way. If we could just get more votes and seats in the parliament for our party, then we'll have more um, we'll have more leverage in future coalition negotiations. So that's where we are right now in as far as the news is concerned. And for Netanyahu, obviously this has become very much a struggle for him to stay in his seat of power. Um, I have said many times on this broadcast here on Novak Now on the Nachum Siegel Network, I have said this many times and I still believe this is true, but I want to qualify something about it. I have said many times that really, when you really look at Israeli politics right now, and you really look at the people who are involved in Israeli politics, it is still very hard to see anyone else but Netanyahu being able to truly and responsibly lead the country as prime minister. And I know that upsets a lot of people who are opposed to Netanyahu, both from the left and the right, especially from the left. I know that angers a lot of folks who have a lot of respect for Benny Gantz, or Yair Lapid, or any of the other people who have had a lot of experience in Israeli politics. But as I think became crystal clear during this election process, and I'm talking about the one that was just negated, the, the one that we thought was going to be the, 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 the last election for a couple of years at least, the election process of the, of the spring that we went through in, in March and in April, I, I think it was just abundantly clear that Gantz isn't quite ready to be prime minister. He didn't handle interviews quite well, and not that speaking and public appearances and the way that one addresses the media is the most important thing. I think that's overvalued in all Western societies and all Western democracies. However, I could see very clearly, and I, I was able to personally be in, in the room when, when there were so many interviews with him, it just didn't seem like he was up to the job of really playing that kind of political master. You know, it doesn't mean that you have to be a a diplomat. There's a difference between being a diplomat and a politician. It doesn't mean that you have to like everything that somebody says and come up with the I feel your pain, I get you, and I agree with you know, what everyone is saying. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about being able to hear what that criticism is and be able to come back with a very strong answer that really sounds like you have at least a strong belief in what you want to do. You know, voters I have found in almost every Western democracy will always appreciate someone who comes out very, very strong with his or her beliefs about a particular policy, even if they're not so sure they agree with that policy. But if somebody comes out very, very confidently 
and talks about that policy in promoting that policy as opposed to saying, I don't like what that other guy's policy is or that other character is and go after him. That we see all the time, and sometimes that works. But what really works, and I'm surprised that more political consultants here in the United States don't coach their candidates to do this. Mostly, I, I would assume the reason is that either they're oblivious to this or their own candidates are just unable to be taught. But if you come out and say, I really believe in Plan X, and Plan X is going to work because of this reason, and you do it really, really forcefully, and you don't brook any doubt in the way that you speak about it, and the way that you feel about your particular policies, uh, it works. It works in a lot of ways better than bashing another candidate does. And Gantz just didn't seem to have that in his repertoire. And it didn't really seem like he stood for anything much other than getting rid of Netanyahu. And you've heard me say this before also on Novak Now. And this is true in Israel as, I, as it is in the United States. I've said this about the United States. If you are running against an incumbent president or prime minister, and it's clear that the only real issue you have and the only thing that you really continually talk about is how bad the other guy is, how bad the incumbent president or prime minister is, you're going to lose. That's not how it works. You've got to be able to present yourself as a really, really strong alternative, talking about the things that I was talking about earlier, really, really pushing a particular policy or so. And again, I'll point to many examples in history where this is true, but for those of you who don't want to go too far back in history, just think of the last time an incumbent president was defeated in this country, and that was 1992, when Bill Clinton defeated George H.W. Bush. And for those of you who really, really remember, and really, really think about this, Remember that Bill Clinton did not bash George H.W. Bush that much. They did that in 1988. When Bush was first running for president, the Democrats had a convention in 1988 where they really ridiculed George H.W. Bush. It started with Ted Kennedy starting some kind of a chant about where was George, and everyone started chanting. It's, it continued with uh, Ann Richards, who at the time was not yet governor of Texas, but she was about to become governor of Texas, uh, making jokes about how George H.W. Bush was born with a silver foot in his mouth. And none of that was particularly nasty by today's standards, but remember, this was 31 years ago. But they made their entire campaign, for the most part, about bashing George H.W. Bush. And it didn't work. In 1992, however, Bill Clinton did not really do that. He really stepped away from the personal bashing of George H.W. Bush. He did not mention him very much in his speeches, he kept away from that, and as all of you probably remember, most of you remember, at least this part you'll remember, Bill Clinton made it about the economy. He kept talking about how the economy could be better, the economy could be stronger, he had a plan to do it, and he sounded very confident when he talked about it, and he was a fresh face. And I know a lot of Republicans and conservatives like to blame Clinton's victory in 1992 on Ross Perot, but there's, I, it's just not true. Bill Clinton did what all successful candidates have done when they've defeated an incumbent, and that is he made it about an issue, he sounded very strong and confident about that issue, and did not spend really much time at all bashing, if, if any time at all, bashing the incumbent. And that's what B Benny Gantz and Blue and White has been about the entire time. I mean, not only is it just patently obvious, obvious that that entire party exists to, to be an alternative to Netanyahu and try to push him out, but that's all they can ever talk about. And they use a lot of dire terminology. Just, just this weekend, Yair Lapid, who is the number two leader in Blue and White, and there's a deal, by the way, that if Blue and White wins control of the Knesset, that Benny Gantz would be prime minister for two years, and then Yair Lapid would be prime minister for two years. I don't know how that would work out. I know that's happened in national unity governments before, 
Uh, many of you may remember that's how Shimon Peres and Yitzhak Shamir sh- shared the premiership in the 1980s. But that was a different kind of arrangement. This was within a, <laughs> one party, not, not a coalition. But anyway, Yair Lapid said over the weekend that if Netanyahu and Likud, or if Blue and White doesn't, it wins the election, and if Blue and White doesn't win the election, that's the end of democracy in Israel. I mean, these are the kinds of statements that desperate politicians make that create a ridiculous amount of polarization in a society, and that's not how you defeat an incumbent president. There is a unity of some sorts that, that coalesces in the electorate, uh, appealing off of some of the supporters of the existing president or prime minister, and the moderates really sort of go over to that new candidate. That's what happens when a new candidate comes over and defeats an incumbent. And right now, that's not what's happening in Israel. That's not what we're hearing from Blue and White. But all that said, Netanyahu has gotten to that point where it is very clear that his number one goal is to hold on to the premiership, and there's a lot of things that he's willing to sacrifice to do that. And again, as I said earlier, I still don't see anyone else really being qualified to be the Prime Minister of Israel right now, in many, many ways. It has a lot to do with just the way that their messaging is and the way that their leadership style would be. But Netanyahu's reaching that expiration date, I think. Um, It's not there yet. It's not the time for the change, I think, at the top that some people say is overdue. I don't think that's, th- that's where we are right now. But this is starting to look more and more like Netanyahu's last dance. If I, if I had to guess, and not only because of those polls that I mentioned, if I had to guess, I would say that Netanyahu will, will come out ahead, even in this new reset of the elections, even in this new September 17th election cycle. He will have a chance to be prime minister for some time going forward. Uh, and that includes with the issues of his, the, 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 the legal issues that he's dealing with, the indictments that he's expected to be hit with. Of course, a lot of people are, are, have been misreporting that story. He's not been indicted. It's been one of those legalistic terms where the, the attorney general has talked about how they're going to start the process of indictment for a couple of scandals, one or two that are more disturbing than the others. There, there are some scandals, there are some things that he's accused of, Netanyahu is accused of, that, that don't really hold water, and some that might be a little bit more disturbing. But I don't think he's at the end of the road yet, but, it, but that final turn, that final lap is, is, I think, beginning for him. And it's not only because of the fact that, by Israeli standards, he's been prime minister forever. I mean, to be prime minister in Israel for 10 consecutive years plus is beyond incredible. It just goes to show tremendous political savvy and acumen in a country that's, you know, very divided and always has been very divided. At least I should say until Israel became truly a multi-party state. It really wasn't until Likud won the elections with Menachem Begin in 1977 that labor's dominance of of everything in Israeli society, from politics to to the military to to the social culture, started to get challenged. But ever since then, it's been a very, very divided country, and t- to be prime minister for more than a decade consecutively is really quite unprecedented. And that is impressive. And, but the point is, is that I think now it's reached that final lap. And again, not only because of that, not, not only because of the divisiveness of Israeli society and in, in, in Israeli politics, but also he, he's getting older. I mean, Benjamin Netanyahu is 69. For many years, he was the young, up, uh, you know, up-and-coming guy in, in Israeli politics, and he's not that person anymore. Um, and I think now is the time for Likud and for people in Israel who are increasingly 
tilting right, especially when it comes to security issues. You know, I, I mentioned this earlier when I talked about the Israel Beitenu voters who may be secular in their religious and in their cultural lives, but politically and especially on issues of security and peace processes and things like that, they're not. They're, they're right wing. And that is where the youth in Israel, whereas young people in most countries, in most democracies, tend to be on the left, in Israel, they, they tend to be on, they're starting to tend to be more on the right. And that's what's happening there. And this, of course, is a result of a number of things. This is not because of any of the conspiracy theories some people might have out there or even religious stuff. It's mostly because of the failure of the Oslo Agreements. Most people in Israel who are of an adult age either know somebody personally or they themselves and their own family have experienced people who have been killed, people who have been injured from that huge spike in terrorism that began in Israel, really with the Oslo Peace Accords. It was supposed to be the end of that and it ended up accentuating it, unfortunately. And the failure of the Oslo Peace Accords destroyed the mainstream left in Israel. And all you have to do is take a look at the election results to know that. The Labor Party that I was talking about before, which once dominated every part of Israeli society, especially the political society, only got six seats in this last election, which is just beyond mind-boggling, considering the dominance that they enjoyed for many, many, many decades. They have lost their, their voice in Israeli politics. There is no major clamoring for more peace deals and more concessions. And because of that, it's really, really difficult for an overall left-wing movement to work in Israel. But what can work is what we're seeing with what Avigdor Lieberman is trying to push, which is a politically, culturally uh, dichotomy, a political-cultural dichotomy, where politically there's a right-wing sentiment, politically and as far as security and defense is concerned, and culturally it's sort of agnostic, but maybe a little bit left. And then when it comes to this issue of the Haredim, a demand that there's a little bit more equality in policy. From the point of view of Lieberman as we move into the second election, I think that there are some things that would really behoove him to understand. One is that Going toe-to-toe with Netanyahu now is probably not the best time to do it, especially since he's clearly not willing to support Benny Gantz or anyone else as, as prime minister. As, and he's said that many times. He doesn't have someone else to take his party to, in other words, literally and figuratively. If he isn't going to support anyone else other than Netanyahu for prime minister, in the end, this is the best he can do, which is to force new elections. And, and maybe roll that dice that way. Um... As Yotav Eliach, who has, is, is an author of a really good book, and you, you've heard me quote him many times here on, on Novak now, and he's been a guest on, on the program, has said, he has said that the process of Haredim joining, getting more involved in the military and getting more involved in the economy is happening anyway. It's happening slowly. But he says, really, the only way that's going to work is if it's an evolution and not a revolution. In other words, let this process continue to go on. There could be some things that can be used to move it along a little bit quicker here and there. But if someone is hoping that a, passing a bill in Knesset overnight is going to just bring 5, 10, 15 percent more Haredim into the, into the military, it's not going to happen. That's, not, that's going to cause a revolution that will be pushed back on, that will cause more divisiveness, and could very easily 
erase the progress that has already been made. And that's an argument that I think holds water. If you just read the, the military draft bill that Lieberman put together, I think it's eminently uh, reasonable. I think it's actually a reasonable bill. But that's just if you're reading it on paper. That's not putting real world and real life factors into the game. And the Haredi community, as again, you've heard me say here on Novak now, I do want it to participate more in the military draft. I think that there's a tremendous contribution that they make towards religious life in Israel, and that's not to be forgotten. But I also think that there are things that they can contribute to the IDF as well from a religious standpoint. There's really no end to what they can contribute when given a chance to do so. And I also don't think that the, that the life that in this, this fastest-growing segment of the Israeli population is living is right for everyone. Not everyone is cut out to study in yeshiva all day. In fact, I would say a minority of people are, even in, within the Haredi community. But that doesn't mean you can't live a very religious and very exemplary life. It's just not cut out for everyone. Uh, this cookie-cutter type life that we're, we're putting a lot of our children in both in the secular world and in the religious world here in, Isra- in Israel and here in the United States, I don't think it's right. And it's not for the best of the country, and it's not for the best of either country. So it's one of those things that I think can continue to move along well. But from Lieberman's point of view, he can't expect to pass a, a draft bill and immediately start conscript- conscripting people and expect that to have anything other than a violent response. And from the Haredi point of view, very often you hear these kinds of incredible rhetoric that the government that, that wants to put them in the army is anti-Semitic, is anti-Jewish. That's ridiculous. That's not helpful. Uh, very often they're compared to the czars, who those of you might know that in the 19th century, the czars would forcibly conscript Jewish boys into the military so that they would try to er- eradicate the Jewish religion. Comparing the Israeli government and Israeli officers and people leading the Israeli military to the czar is also not going to do us any good. It's not true. It's offensive. It's stupid. It's not what's going on, especially since so much of the officer corps in Israel are kippah-wearing Orthodox Jews who have revitalized the IDF, modern Orthodox Jews. So this is really not a, a good argument on either side. This kind of draconian stuff isn't going to work. How much of this is actually going to finally be addressed in this election campaign is beyond me. I think that, as I said earlier, this is a great opportunity for Benjamin Netanyahu to come out again, very, very clearly, with a position, and forcibly back it up, as he has done so many times before, especially on issues of security, and especially on issues of, like, Iran. If Netanyahu came out and really, really supported this evolution versus revolution idea that Yotav Eliyach has talked about and, and I've talked about, I think it would be a, a winning issue for him. I think he could win over enough of the Israel Beitenu voters and those who are sympathetic with that policy and say, look, we are getting more of the Haredim into the army. We are getting them more into the economy. We have reduced some of their welfare benefits. But this is for the good of that community, not for the punishment of that community. We're not here to punish them. We're not here to eradicate their way of life. We're here to show that their way of life is flexible and they can work within the army. It can work within the economy. Jews can, of all kinds of religious levels, can participate in both. And I think he should really make that argument instead of staying mum on it and making it all about Lieberman and, and accusing him of being a man of the left, which he isn't, and those kinds of things. And Lieberman has to understand that his bill his military draft bill, and having it passed overnight is just not a realistic option. 
Now, I don't know if these elections, this new set of elections, is going to create that result for either one of these guys. But I can tell you that if one of them or both of them come to that position, then not only would the general right wing, the center right majority of Israel, which is really the majority of the voters, not only would their parties end up with, I believe, something close to 70 seats in the Knesset, which again would be a dominant majority, but it would be a strong unification of most of the country. It would really have a lot of positive effects, not only for that center-right block that wants to get almost 70 seats in the Knesset, but it would be positive for the country's psyche. And that's, I think, where we should go. You can follow me on Twitter for more of these ideas. I'm at at JakeJakeNY. This is Jake Novak. This has been Novak Now on the Nachum Siegel Network. Speak to you again next week.